My name is John, and this is Please Allow Me. Tonight we sit with Jacob Beecraft. He's an MIT synthetic biologist and the CEO and co-founder of the biotech startup Strand Therapeutics. His company develops gene therapies for rapid response vaccines against infectious diseases. He has a PhD in biological engineering and he's a blue belt in the gentle art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Please welcome Jacob Beecraft. JB, what's going on? What's up, JC? Same old, same old, my man. So, uh, did you get us a fucking cure for the COVID yet? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's fucked up out there, man. Like, the, the, the coronavirus ha- has had me scared since December when it came out because it's, it's probably the, the first, like, highly infectious, uh, uh, highly infectious new virus that, we, that we've come across. But, I mean, it, I, 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 we're working on a, a vaccine. We're working with the other vaccine partners. I mean, it's uh, vaccine shit is slow, too. I mean, we're moving. Actually, we're moving at a record speed right now, but uh, uh, it's... Uh, still slow. So when you guys work on a vaccine, what's the process for that? Like, what do you say? Like, oh, here's the COVID. Um, what, what's the first thing you guys have to do? And who are vaccine partners you work with? Is it all internal? Are you working with some other people? Are you giving like homeless people 15 bucks to stick them in the ass <laughs> with some weird needle? I mean, what's going on? Well, like, so, so, you know, the, the whole, like really what a vaccine is, right? It's like, you have to figure out how to teach the immune system what a virus looks like. It's actually a lot like jujitsu, right? When you got to, you have to figure out like what other, what other things are trying to, to do shit, right? So you got to train the body. And so in order to like show a, a virus to the body without it getting infected, you have to figure out a way to to like impart that into uh, into the body, and so that can be done by like taking a bunch of the the fucking virus and administering it to a person after you've like killed it so it won't replicate. Uh, it can also be done by just like getting a bunch of the virus proteins. And that's what we do now. Like we, we figure out, we take the virus proteins or we take gene therapy and we encode the virus proteins on like DNA and we inject that into the person. Um, but like, you know, the FDA is, is moving fast, but they're still too slow. Like it's, it's obviously still too slow because we're still fucking unable to do shit. We're running a 40,000 person clinical trial instead of like deploying these vaccines across. So, and so what slows it down? Is it like the government just like with a system of checks and balances or is it finances and getting the funding to do it? Or is it just simply like learning more about the virus? So, so the, the biggest thing that slows it down right now um, because of some new technology we have is going to be manufacturing, uh, and regulatory approval. So, were you going to do that in China? <laughs> so you know, like uh, uh, the best vaccine on the market right now is actually partnered in China as well. It's a German company that's that works with Pfizer in the U.S. and Fosun in China. That's BioNTech. They have the number one vaccine, but like, don't sell the solution, sell the problem, baby. Marketing one on one, those motherfuckers. You know, like it's it's actually pretty fucking crazy. Like China kind of was warning warning the United States actually at the beginning of the year. I, I don't I don't think they're doing a great job of they're they're, they're suppressing a lot of information. Um, but they they did tell the United States this shit was going on, and the U.S. really both the biotech industry. And the leadership of the country dragged their feet on addressing it. And, you know, it's, 
it's so fucking, it's just so fucking frustrating because you look at like the amount of resources that we're having to plow into the vaccine right now, right? Like BioNTech has gotten, BioNTech and Pfizer have gotten billions of dollars and, and Novavax has gotten $1.6 billion a couple weeks ago and Moderna got 500 million years ago, uh, a couple weeks ago to make a vaccine when- From the government? From the government, from, from uh, BARDA, uh, which, is, which is like an emergency biotech defense uh, uh, agency within the government. Um, and, and so BARDA and a number of other uh, health agencies also, you know, everyone knows Dr. Fauci. He runs the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. They actually partnered with Moderna, which is right across the river here uh, uh, in Cambridge. They're right next to us, my, my company, and they develop very similar technology. We, we have better technology, of course, but like, um, you know, they develop very similar technology and they partnered with the government to actually do the clinical trials on their vaccine. But the problem is that there's three stages in, in doing a vaccine. The first one is safety. You do like 40 people and you show, do these people get fucked up? And then you do like a couple thousand people and you show, do these people get sick and do they have an, a, do they actually have like antibodies in their body against the virus? And then you have to do a multi-site, like, you know, like multiple different cities 40, 50,000 person study, and you have to wait for months to see if people get infected to show if a vaccine is uh, effective. And the, the big risk there is just to, to like say it is that if you, sometimes with vaccines, you can actually do, uh, do something to the body called enhancement, which is where instead of making the body train to fight it, you train the body the incorrect way to fight uh, it, and it fucks you up worse. Gotcha. How does a company like Moderna get in bed with like the FDA to, to be partners with the government in the vaccine? How does that happen? Is that just strictly a what, you know, who you know and who you blow type situation? So, so like the government has a bunch of like way, the, the government's been supporting Moderna's company for years, actually. They've been, they've been getting grant. They, they were started with the same DARPA grant that when I was at MIT, we were on this DARPA grant called Protect, which was to develop uh, these, these gene therapy viruses. And what Moderna ended up going and, and doing was getting, from the same program, they got about $25 million to develop, this, to, to develop their technology. They've gotten hundreds of millions since then, before COVID. Um, so they're very well connected, and they had a very well connected like, board member. Um, but anyone can, you know, we've talked to the US government, I've talked to uh, a number of people in the, the uh, Offices. I talk to local and state governments about both coronavirus like responses and what we can do to like accelerate these timelines on these therapies. But like the the problem or the, the the way that Moderna is actually getting to be a part of this, I think is actually verging on cronyism. So the so so cronyism in the U.S. government. Crony, who would have fucking thought? Me right? shocked. So, so like the head of the head of the uh, the Operation Warp Speed, which Moderna, which is the Trump administration's like plan to get a vaccine as fast as possible, they went out and got um, they went out and got a, he, uh, a, a old, uh, an older guy who used to be at a company called GSK to run this fucking division, and uh, he was on the Moderna board of directors. And now he stepped down from the Moderna board of directors and allegedly sold off all of his stock, but he's the number one person in charge of determining who gets the money in the top five finalists uh, for vaccines. See, that that's a huge problem with like the government and the in private sector. It's like, in order to work for the government, the first thing you got to do is work for the private sector, and then you get a job for the government after you racked up some experience. Now you go to the government, and you you know you work a bunch of years there, rack up a bunch of debt favors, favors and debt, and then you go back in the private sector and teach whoever you're working for how to beat the government system. 
Oh yeah, it's, like, a- it's just back and forth. Like you shouldn't be working for the SEC and then six months later be working for a hedge fund. Oh, I think you there should be a, a, a literal moratorium on your time that you can go into the private sector after you serve in the government. And I think the government should just pay, just match your salary. When you leave the government, you get a match salary for the next three years, and you cannot go and work with a company that does any business or any anything in regulations or or being benefited by the U.S. government because like. I feel that way about that. I feel that way about media. I mean, the, the, the fucking Speaker of the House stepped down, you know, Paul Ryan, when he stepped down, he's now on the board of directors of Fox News. Like, yeah. what the fuck, man? Like, <laughs> it's bananas. It's like, there, there are so few high-ranking generals in the military because they get to a certain level and they spend their entire, like, the last third of their careers in the military lobbying for certain defense industries. Oh, yeah. And then, instead of riding it out and getting the pension, they retire early and then they go get these fucking jobs with the defense industry jobs for, you know, huge money. And then, you know, they start like, you know, trading secrets back and forth or whatever the hell it is they do. I shouldn't say that because I, I don't know anything. But, but you know, like, like you know, that piece of shit company Theranos, right? Elizabeth Holmes. Mad Dog Mattis was on their board of directors. The fuck does Mad Dog Mattis know about blood testing? I mean, probably about as much as Elizabeth Holmes knew, to be honest. But like, you know, the only reason that he's on the board of directors is to sell to the fucking army. Like, it's, it's, it's pretty clear i feel like you know it's it's like why would he be at that at, at that company on the board of directors other than to get contracts with the government where he was a, a general and where he was a, a you know high ranking official of the national security council it the whole thing's fucked up so let me ask you this question cuz i don't know anything about it but so recently you know, there's this whole big conspiracy about uh the video being taken down of all these doctors touting the uh, I'm going to fuck up how you say it, hydroxychloroquine and That's all these right. other things. And, um, you know, it's on Twitter and it's 15 million views and then it's yanked down over here and then everyone's pumping it up and like, what the fuck is going on? These people, like I did a little Googling and some of these people are like, I mean, they seem reputable to me. I mean, what the fuck do I know about who's a good doctor and who's not a good doctor? But, you know, there are some people that have some like, they've got big initials after their name from good universities and they're up there saying that this can suppress COVID. What's up? What's going on? Why aren't those people reputable? Why why are certain media sources saying not to listen to them? And why are certain media sources saying they're being suppressed? So I think that the the problem right now is that we have a shit ton of different media sources, right? We have everywhere from podcasts to CNN, and you could say that you could get, you know, even news from both, you know, someone's podcast from a basement and CNN with the level that CNN like, you know takes to their news at this point. But the, the, the thing is, so hydroxychloroquine is a antiviral. And early on in the progression of COVID, it was, a new, it was a new disease, right? And we tried to figure out, like we threw every antiviral that we knew at it. Everyone under development and, and whatnot. Hydroxychloroquine looked good, like in some early uh, like cellular studies in the lab, right? It looked like it was going to do some shit. The problem actually ended up where when we did it in a, clinical, in a clinical study, like multiple different clinical studies in different countries even, the most recent one in the New England Journal of Medicine from like a week or two ago was in Brazil, like 45,000 patients in a combination therapy. And it just shows that there is no positive benefit from taking this drug. It's an, unappro- it's an unapproved drug in, in these indications, but that's really like how the, how the government like 
regulates drugs, right? You you can't just like get a drug regulated because you say, oh, what the fuck? Like, does it do bad shit? Well, why don't we try it? So is it effective at all? No, it's not effective at all in patients. The one argument that people have tried to put forward in that, that, that you know, crazy lady from the uh from Houston that was on the Capitol steps that went that went viral who believes like you know demon sex and demon sperm is the cause of all disease and she owns the church next to her clinic and all sorts of crazy ass shit like she's a doctor oh so she's tax exempt too Dude, she's tax exempt. I'm sure all of the clinic money goes right through that church. She's like the pastor at a church that's next to her clinic, and she treats people with like tantric demon sex, and she believes that you know lizards she, run the U.S. government. Like is she, she has hot? a website. No, she's not. She's from me. But like that would have been a nice storyline. But dude, yeah, she she like she so like that crazy motherfucker. Like she she gets up on there, and why you you asked earlier like why are people saying this? And so just because people like went to even a, a good university. There's, some, there's this crazy-ass dude that graduated my department at MIT uh, named uh, Dr. Shiva. He's on Twitter with like 500,000 followers talking about how the deep state is, is suppressing, uh, suppressing hydroxychloroquine. He's a fucking idiot. Like, it's, <laughs> like, 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 but the thing is, controversy sells. Like, we live in a world where if, if that doctor... That same like crazy ass doctor or Dr. Shiva or any of these motherfuckers, if they went out and said, hey guys, like wear a mask, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, and you know, all of this, they would never get any media attention. But it's the same reason that Kim Kardashian gets fucked in the ass and then has a reality TV show because it's about fucking attention. It's not about being right. Yeah, I hear you, man. The the big headline I saw today, like as I was on my way home, is I don't know if you saw this. Uh, Fauci's now urging Americans to wear goggles. A lot of times, the reporters will ask, and I've been misquoted like this in articles all the time. The reporters will ask questions like, "Would wearing goggles help? Like, you know, tune the the you know attune the transmission rate?" And the doctor will probably say, "Yeah, fucking probably. It's a mucous membrane where viruses can enter. I mean, the the most recent data that we have says that the biggest risk that you can do is not be in a, not wear a mask in an enclosed area. Social distancing may not even really play into it, but it's really about being around a large amount of people in an enclosed area because there was a there was a study last month that showed that it's about the viral load that you're exposed to. So something like 90% of asymptomatic people think that they caught the virus in an open environment. So people who have asy- who are asymptomatic think they caught it like outside, not wearing a mask. But when, you know, when when people get it inside and this is why you see like young doctors and nurses dying is because they're like under this huge viral load. Like if you think about it, like every infected person in an area is going to contribute a certain amount of viruses to the air. Like, and then you see these fucking like young people, doctors, nurses, like fucking dying, man. It's, it's, it, I, it's I like know. a video game health meter. It's like you get a bunch of shit exposed or like a bunch of little pellets hitting you and your health meter starts to go down. But one at a time is not going to maybe take, take out an otherwise healthy person. It, exactly. It's it's probably not going to take out an otherwise hel- healthy person. I think the the other big risk, though, and and one of the things that's that's led me to like you know tell a lot of my my friends and 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 relatives and everyone, even that are like young and healthy and fit and everything, is that one we don't know what the long term duration of these viruses are. Right? It's not the flu. Like as much as people want to say like oh it's a bad flu or or people originally thought it was a type of the flu, what it does is it causes lung distress. But what it is is a cardiovascular disease from what we can say. So it is affecting your cardiovascular system, which can, inf- which can impact your respiratory system, which can impact your ability to 
breathe, but it is inflaming basically your, what they call uh, endothelial cells, which are like lining cells. They line your veins, they line your lungs, they're, they're, they're lining everything in your body. And so what ends up happening is that, you know, people get these flu-like symptoms, but viruses can really fuck you up in the long term. Like they can fuck up your life for the rest of your life. And people with the initial thought of that it was the flu, they thought, as soon as I'm good, as soon as I'm fine, as soon as I'm recovered and I'm not like wheezing anymore, even if I got intubated in the, in the, in the doctor's office, I'll be okay. We don't know that. Polio fucking paralyzed people. HIV killed people years after they transmitted it. I want to come back to that because I have a question about that. But I wanted to ask you this other question first because my second favorite scientist is a guy named uh, Coco Benutis. And he says that uh, one of the big problems with coronavirus is that it lives primarily in the adipose fat tissue. Um, Is there... Is there any accuracy to that? And if so, like, is that an argument for uh, the government making, as usual, some drastically incorrect decisions in terms of what businesses they've allowed to be open during this time? So, uh, yes and no. So I think that the government's decisions have been based around highest rates of transmission. So I, I, you know you run a gym, I assume, uh, it has something to do with your, your want for people to not have as much adipose tissue by coming right. in and fighting. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people put on fucking the coronavirus 15. Uh, so, I mean, so there's some, there's some things that say that the, the virus may take up in certain cell types in your body. Some of it looks like adipose tissue. Again, like, I can't understate this enough. We are shooting, like, blind. Like, Viruses can be completely, like, we could get over them. They can be completely harmless to normal people, or they could completely fuck you up in the long run. We really don't have, like, you know, another Fauci article. Fauci was in Wired today or yesterday talking about, you know, one of the long-term risks. What are the long-term risks of coronavirus? The thing is, we don't know. Like, we're not at a place in medical science where we can look at a virus or look at a response and say, this is going to fuck people up in the long run. Like, all we know is this is happening today. In a year, people who recovered from coronavirus could all of a sudden start, you know, you know, having fucking lung cancer, for all we know. Like, we don't know. So, like, there's a guy that, um, you know, I've seen him on that goddamn cesspool Facebook, and uh, he's he seems to be a pretty bright guy. He's a friend in common with another friend I, I have. And he's always on there talking about, like, the long-term lung scarring and this and that and the other thing. And I'm like, like... How do you know about the long-term effects of this thing? It's been here for six months. Like, how do we know what the long-term effects are? Is that just theory? And if so, like, why can't we theorize on other medical long-term outcomes? So, you know, with with something like lung scarring, it's like, you know, you, you look at the lungs right now, and if there's early signs of scarring, you know that the lung is very bad at regenerating itself from scar tissue because we've done... Uh, you know, because of lung cancer, we've done thou- or, you know millions of surgeries to remove lung tumors. What about the liver? So the liver is the most regenerative uh, organ in your body, man. It I replaces itself, yeah, super fast. <laughs> that'll uh, that'll that'll save a lot of us. But. I'll sleep well tonight. But I mean, like, so so we know that if like lung scarring is happening, that that will be. We don't know if that'll be a complication long-term, but we know that scars in the lung can affect oxygen rates in your body for the rest of your life. And that will only get worse with your life because scar tissue prohibits reconstructive growth. So scar tissue only gets worse over time. It's like if you have a heart attack in your early 50s and it causes a lot of scar tissue, you probably just took 15 years off your life because you now have that fucking scar tissue. 
Is there any amount of like a cardiovascular exercise or aerobic exercise that can reverse the effects or maybe not even reverse the effects, just kind of like increase your lung capacity or do anything that can offset the damage that was already done by the virus? I mean, we don't, for, for most of the part with, with lung scarring, it, you know, you can increase your lung capacity over time. Like your, your lungs will adapt to whatever the fuck it is that you want to do. Now, maybe you're never going to be an ultra marathon runner, but if you get scarring tissue in your lungs through training over time, you can probably get yourself back to whatever like mediocre level of in shape you probably were if you were even at that level. And to be clear, we're, we're basically just spitballing and guessing on that stuff based on... Well, I mean, we, we know that if people get like scars in their lung, they can get back to a level of fitness. Um, you know, if if Michael Phelps in the middle of his like height of his career of of crushing in the Olympics with his gigantic superhuman fishman lungs, if he had gotten lung scarring, it's unlikely he would get back to his level because he was at a peak performance level. I personally am not at a peak performance level. Most of America is not at a peak performance level. So if you went back and retrained, it would be harder to get back in shape. But you could probably get yourself back to the, the point where your lungs are able to take in the sort of oxygen that you need to you know, half-ass your way through a jiu-jitsu fight. Take a look across the table. This is what peak performance looks like, my man. Dude, dude right this, here. Is, this is it right here. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hitting 30 in a couple months and uh, coming in hot. Wow. Yeah, you must be. Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't a professional fighter in my 20s. I was <laughs> professionally trying to figure out this fucked up. Yeah. Disease. Well, so when you talk about, uh, you know, training and, and doing all those other things, all that stuff is good after the fact. But I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal and it was talking about how um, a lot of the problems with the coronavirus were due to like poor health habits of people specifically in America who, you know, a lot of people are fat. A lot of people are out of shape. We have underlying health conditions. The big problem in Italy I was reading in the journal was that, you know, people start smoking at fucking nine years old and, you know, they got high cholesterol. Everything is, you know, baked with a pound of butter. Like <laughs> how much of that, like, is there an example of like a really healthy population on earth that has less of an, uh, has been affected less by Corona or is it just kind of universally similar and, that's, that's actually kind of impossible to tell right now, right? Because what we're looking at when we talk about those diseases is just correlations, right? We're saying, okay, the death rate of people that have leukemia who get this disease is way worse. The people with, you know, we know people with compromised immune systems are going to be worse at fighting off viruses in general. But like, you know, people with high blood pressure, people with diabetes, but the other, like, in America, we've seen some other kind of fucked up things that, I don't know, maybe it highlights how awful or fucking healthcare system is, um, which is like, you know, the, the like black Americans are 1.8 times as likely to die of coronavirus than white Americans. So is that a result of the healthcare system or is that a result of uh, some sort of a genetic thing where black Americans are, have, are more predisposed to diabetes, which is a big underlying um, uh, factor for this. Like, I mean, so, I know some of my Filipino and Native American friends, like they're genetically more, they're genetic, genetically predisposed to uh, like pancreatitis. Right. And that, that's got nothing to do with the healthcare system. So is it a combination of those things? So I would say that the, um, the genetic predisposition to like, like what you're talking about, diabetes and, and whatnot, what, where there might be a genetic predisposition to dying from the virus is probably more likely to lack of infrastructure 
to like actual palliative care. And I say that because, you know, these studies that show like black Americans are 1.8 times as likely as white Americans to die of the coronavirus across the board. Those are studies that are controlled for risk factors, known diseases and such. Now, could there, could there be an underlying genetic thing that we don't fucking know about that's completely out, out there? E- in, in the world of possibility, yes. So when you say controlled, like <clears throat> I've never run a scientific experiment. So is an experiment controlled? Like, like let's say a population is uh, uh, generally more likely to be overweight than another population. Like, how do you control for that in an experiment? Like, what's that process? So you can rank people by like, you know, their, their weight or their BMI or what they're classically considered. Now, you know, you're a health uh and fitness professional, you know, BMI is bullshit, especially. Right, BMI is. I'm we're, obese. We're, we're big I'm dudes. Obese. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. like probably obese at this fuck point. Fuck that. Dude, yeah, so f- like, yeah, fuck it. I was obese when I was like in high school wrestling, like down to my weight, and I was still I was like jacked. Overweight. I was jacked. Oh, yeah, no, I was huge, but. <laughs> you should have seen me in a singlet. It was oh, tremendous. Gosh, it was something to behold. Real homoerotic, yeah. <laughs> So like, so when you control for a study, basically it means that like all the confounding variables you've controlled for. So if I'm comparing, you know, a a black guy to, you know, a a black population to a white population, I am controlling individual populations of, you know, okay, so here are, you know, maybe I say I'm only going to look at healthy individuals. So no preexisting conditions, no overweight, no, no, any of that. And then I'm only comparing that to white people of the same type. Ah, I see. So, so you, you take out, you know, what's called confounding variables, shit that throws in. I took stats. I know what confounding variables are. I just didn't know how you controlled for them. Yeah. So let me ask you this other question. So, um, you're obviously an expert in, in science and biology, but I'm sure that your uh, level of experience and expertise goes well beyond that. When you say it's a symptom of our healthcare system, we live in Massachusetts and we live in a time of Obamacare, which is still largely in effect. What what are the shortfalls of our healthcare system that could possibly be uh, causing uh, you know lower socioeconomic groups to fall victim to COVID? So in the U.S. and in in Massachusetts as as well. Even though we do have um, not only Obamacare, we also have Mass Health, which is a you know Mitt Romney's uh, project. We have socialized health care in the state of Massachusetts. Oh, I know, brother. We'll get to that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I, I, Dude, so uh, and and we're definitely going to disagree. So, like, um, <laughs> what in terms of healthcare access like Obamacare is far from perfect, and it's not my it's not my favorite healthcare bill. I think it got seventy million people. Off of being uninsured, and that is a that is a win, but it is not the win. It's basically like, hey man, like, you know, I'm gonna take this back to jujitsu because that's like the original way that we know each other. So I mean, it's it's like when you get your ass kicked in a match, but you didn't score points versus you get your ass kicked in the match. And you're like, yeah, but man, did you see me take him down in the in, in the third minute? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I got a sick double on him. Yeah, he armbarred me, but like, fuck yeah. it. I know a couple guys like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, Jackson. Uh, so. You know, it's it's kind of like that where where the bar was so low that I feel like Obamacare being good for the country 
is is inherently true, though it missed so many aspects. One of the biggest things that Obamacare did that fucked us up, um, and it was part of the negotiation process, it wasn't in the original Obamacare, was that the U.S. government is the biggest buyer of pharmaceuticals in the world. The U.S. government buys, because of Medicare and Medicaid, the U.S. government buys more drugs than any other entity in the entire world. But because of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, it is forbidden from negotiating drug prices. So that is pretty fucked up. Like, um, you know, Trump recently signed an executive order about drug pricing like last week, and it's made some ripples through the biotech community. I am, you know, I I am not for, you know, these weird executive orders. I think we need sweeping legislation to fix the healthcare system. But the the, the thing that always comes up is like, you know, oh, well, you know, we can't do it in America because America's different. Like, Every single other rich country in this world has a single payer, has a a form of socialized medicine. Because at the end of the day, we have to think about like, what is the point of being this fucking rich if we can't take care of general people? Like, I've been poor. I've been down on my my shit. I've been in graduate school where I barely could afford living in Boston, and I've been completely without like you know hope of of getting like health coverage for something. I've been to an ER and showed up with a three thousand dollar bill. We have no price transparency in this country. But when hospital systems have been overtaxed in this country, when when hospital like with what's going on with COVID, and especially urban areas where a lot of Black Americans have been have have been you know over generations of socioeconomic and racist policies, the fact is that they have a lower access to healthcare because they cannot afford to pay it or because a health system is incentivized to discharge patients it can't pay, it can't, it, that can't reliably pay them. But isn't that the whole reason for like mass health and Obamacare so that those people are getting healthcare? Because I mean, I know that in, what was it? In 2010, <clears throat> I had uh, I had insurance through a company here in Mass, and uh, I had it for myself and a spouse, and it was a total of $501 a month. I had my ACL replaced. My bill was like $150. I'm with that company still through uh, Obama's presidency and now into Trump's, and I had my other ACL replaced. Same company, same insurance, cost me, oh, so- it cost me at one point eight hundred dollars a month. It's down now to about I think it's six fifty six, and I got like an eleven hundred dollar bill for my left ACL to be done. So, like I, I I hear you on all those other things, but isn't that the whole reason that we have Mass Health and Obamacare to take care of those people who are in the the most unfortunate socioeconomic brackets? So I don't know the Massachusetts uh, black versus white disparity of coronavirus responses. Like I don't I don't have that I don't know the statistic. You know, Jamie pulled that up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like I what I think is a a bigger issue is that there's a difference between being insured and being covered, right? And so I could say that, you know, we we can talk about your ACL in a second, but when when someone has a a insurance company that might cover them for certain procedures, but the the fact that the health insurance system is not unified in a single 
functioning system means that we have to have multiple pieces of free market economics at every single system. But like our health insurance system is the least free market system that we have possibly. Now, again, I'm not an, econ- an economist, but it's like, I mean, you can't bid across state lines. I mean, there's nobody knows what the hell you're paying for. There's no transparency. I mean, right. if, if and me, who is just a, a, a knuckle dragon goon, I mean, I would think that the healthcare system is the least free market that we have. We've basically got you know, the government is charging, is forcing people to pay artificially inflated prices who use a service less so that other people can can use a service more at artificially low prices. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I said I'm not a fan of the ACA. Like, no, I hear and, you. And, and its implications. And uh, I have, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call this a conspiracy theory. I think, like, you know, it, it's pretty clear that this was going to happen, that, that this is what happened. But the ACA, in its negotiations by people who didn't want it to be successful, was set up to fail. Part of it is the fact that you know the U.S. government can't negotiate drug prices, is, and part of it is all the different sorts of p- fees and penalties that fee- that feed into it. But right now, like you have to basically tell me that whether or not you think that a system that has you know seventeen companies between me and my doctor, between a principal care provider, between a uh, a, a payment system and health insurer, the hospital network, and then the hospital itself and all of their administrators, every single one of those people needs to make money, and they're making a fuck ton of money. Not just the doctor; the doctors are making like decent money, but the administrators and the the people at Blue Cross Blue Shield are making a fuck ton of money. But what you're saying is a symptom of like problems in almost every institution in the country, the ad- bloated administration yep. everywhere. Like, I mean, to me, the biggest problem with our education and our protection, the police is that we have so much bloated administration that we can't properly afford to pay the frontline workers, the customer facing employees who are like the people in the classroom and the people on the streets. We we can't afford to pay those people enough. And what happens is, like, uh, how, think about how many cops you know. I know a shitload of people in law enforcement. Yeah. I know one kid who grew up our whole lives wanting to be a cop. All the other people in law enforcement that I know, they just wound up there. Like, I know a dude that was in theology school at Yale. He's got, like, a PhD in theology. And now he's, like, kicking indoors and fighting a drug war that he'll tell you is a waste of time. Like, there are some people that grow up and they want to be teachers. And, you know... But there are, there are also, those are professions where people kind of fall back into because they know that there are always openings and they can do that. And the starting salaries aren't enough to make those jobs competitive. You need to start these motherfuckers at 100K a year and you got to take that fat button pushing lady who does nothing but scowl at people and, and, and she exists or he or he or they or Zier, whatever. Zoom. Zoom. They <laughs> exist in every in every level of every institution like bureaucracy my my friend posted something on facebook and it was the greatest definition of bureaucracy is work that adds no value yeah and and that's what they do and so if you start to cut those people out unions won't allow it now what you do is you can start these cops at 100 grand a year and at 100 grand a year guess what happens the applicant pool gets a lot deeper you can now choose types of people that you want to work there. They're going to be more qualified. They're going to be more educated. They're going to be better applicants. And hopefully you can cut down on some of the shit that we have. Like unions in my experience and like from people that I know, especially in education and in like protection, law enforcement specifically, all unions do is keep the worst, the worst people at their jobs employed the longest. So 
unions have a storied history over our over our history as a nation, right? But we don't have 12-year-olds working in factories anymore. We don't. But I can guarantee you that if we had 12-year-olds working in factory to, factories today and some and Bernie Sanders came out and said we got to get these fucking 12-year-olds out of these factories, Ted Cruz would come out with a tweet that said, "Who's going to pay the extra money for that factory? These 12-year-olds got to contribute." Like like I know that's an exaggeration and I know that's like the fact is that we're sitting with hindsight and we can look back at the past. He sounded like, more like Bernie than Ted there. Well, good. Like, yeah. <laughs> Bernie's just, a better person. Just the impersonation. Ted. Like, <laughs> the billionaires, the billionaires. <laughs> but, like, you know, so, so like, in, in my opinion, like, what you have to, what you have to think about is, okay, so the healthcare system is filled with bullshit administration. Now, why, why is that? It's because you have inefficient monopolistic systems. You said, I think we, uh, we don't have a free market system. And you're right, which is why I think that the government should take over the healthcare system with actual true funding. Because at the end, it, it, we're seeing with coronavirus, public health is in everyone's best interest. It is not what we, oh shit, we do not want you know, individual hospitals, depending who gets coronavirus treatment and who doesn't, because we want no one to have coronavirus because that's how we get the fuck out of this mess. But that's what they're doing in Pennsylvania today. Did you see that? So in the New York Times, they just published an article today and it said in Pennsylvania, what they're doing is they've got a drug that's helping to treat coronavirus and they're doing a weighted lottery. And because everyone is so goddamn woke now, the weighted lottery is uh, heavily favoring lower income people. It should just be who needs the drug the most. There shouldn't be a weighted lottery. Now, the disclaimer is I'm an asshole because all I did was read the headline and then the first three sentences, which is what I always like am yelling at people about doing. But that is what I read, and there probably are some some different uh, nuances to the story that I don't quite understand. And frankly, I probably wouldn't understand if I read the whole article anyway. I didn't read it. It could be that in the waiting system, in terms of need, they've classified need as in terms of how high density of a living community of of a living population or a, a living community do you live in, and low income people who live in social who live in subsidized or or you know projects essentially do need it more because they have a non-control over who they're around all the time. They have a low-income group and they have a high density of those sorts of people and they also have a lower access to healthcare. So if you're going to weight it in terms of a public health need of who needs this the most, I would argue that you should weight it to people who are in public housing and it it's a side effect that people that live in public housing are lower income. It's not necessarily it. I don't know. I didn't read this fucking article. I'm playing, you know, devil's ad. No, I hear you. No, I hear you. And it's like all this, all this coronavirus and frankly, all news, it comes out so fast now. And it's like, there's so much of it. Like you don't even really have time to read it. Like I, I'm always yelling at people like read the fucking article and then Google the author and figure out what their angle is. But in reality, there's so much of it that everyone gets caught in the headline Everyone gets caught just reading a first, the first couple of lines, and then we don't critically think about where did this come from, what's the motive, because let's be honest, it, I think the days of objective journalism are gone, and I think that everything is about clicks and everything is about everything, and we have to consider that when we consume news sources, which is why I, I was having uh, a conversation today with one of my employees who's from uh, another country, and he's here on a student visa, and I was saying, look, man, like what I do is... 
I got a couple of left-wing news sources and a couple of right-wing news sources and an international news source. And if there's a topic that interests me enough that I care about, I try and go through all those news sources and see what everyone is saying and then put the pieces together based on my own experiences and my own beats because, you know, Fox is going to be full of shit, MSNBC is going to be full of shit, and BBC is going to be full of shit, but they're all going to be full of their own shit. Right. And so, like, dude, uh, have you ever read the book Manufacturing Consent? It's by Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Manufacturing Consent is this book that basically says that it's not about what the media says, it's about how they frame the conversation, right? And so when the the you know, left-wing or right-wing media, whatever you think. And this was a book that was written years back, right? right? Like it's an old book. And most of the book covers the U.S. through the 60s, you know, through the Vietnam War, through the Reagan years, um, and a little bit into Clinton. What it does is it says that it's not about what the media is even arguing for. It's a it's about how the media frames the conversation and how and the words they use, right? So if the so if they talk about the legitimacy of an election in Nicaragua, where they talk about the freedom of a democratic election in Guatemala, that that inherently is changing your conversation because now you're saying, okay, like is Nicaragua's election legitimate? Like, and and who is saying? Because it doesn't matter if they say, let's talk about the legitimacy. It is legitimate. Let's talk about legitimacy. It's not legitimate. Now you can say, oh, one's right wing and one's left wing. But the fact that they've raised the question raises the question for us more so than than we should be saying, well, what are the metrics of overarching and how overarching legitimacy, and how do we apply that to Nicaragua and Guatemala? So. Ron Paul actually had something interesting to say about that. And he said, and I mean, I don't have a fact checking team here. It's me and my cat, but um, he was basically talking about how over the last few months, the media has been changing slowly the terminology they're using in the headlines from coronavirus deaths to coronavirus cases, because most people only fixate on the number that's in the headline. And so uh, by doing so, the number grows when you change it from deaths to cases. And so you're changing a lot of perceptions in people's minds and they kind of don't know that you're actually changing the, the context of it. So, so Ron Paul's a fucking idiot. And um, <laughs> like, he's probably the stupidest medical doctor since Ben Carson to be a part of uh, our, our political establishment. Are you biased? I mean, dude, you know, I fall like, on the left, but I, you know, I hate the neoliberals. I'm more progressive, but like, you know, you know, Clinton, Biden, all of them like eat a dick. But like the fact of the matter to me is that Ron Paul through the whole coronavirus thing has been nothing but a fucking dumb idiot trying to stay relevant. Now I say like, I understand why they're changing it to cases. And it's because in, in the coronavirus, if you look at all the curves, if you look at what happened in every single country in terms of cases versus death, there's a two and a half week lag on every curve in terms of increasing cases and increasing deaths. Now fucking media whores like Elon Musk, right? And, and, and his brother Kimball were tweeting out when the new cases. He's got a brother named Kimball. He's got a brother named Kimball Musk who runs a farming startup. I don't know. They're all they're, they, they, sounds guys. like sounds like when I was in high school and I didn't have enough money for cologne. I'd go through the CVS aisle and get a spritz of something. Yeah. Before <laughs> before I, before I took my babe to Olive Garden. Kimball Musk. Yeah, that's kind of what he looks like. He's like the cologne that Elon wears. Uh, the, the, so like the the thing is like. What I saw these guys doing while cases were increasing in the United States was they were 
purposefully talking about, well, why aren't the deaths increasing? Why aren't the deaths increasing? When you could easily look at any graph of any other country or even the United States when we were changing, when we were, you know, dealing with this bullshit and say, you know, here's, here's where the, uh, here's where the cases started and here's where the death started. And there's about a two and a half week lag before this catches up. And so when you talk about that change, that becomes a problem when you're talking about a new peak. Because what you can't do is you can't say, you know, at what, our deaths were dying off from the first wave and the cases were increasing. So there's not a thing to talk about the cases. There's not a, there's not a point to talk about that has to do with the cases. What you have to do is say, cases are spiking again. And now what we're seeing, since Ron Paul's dumbass like, said that shit, we're seeing the deaths start to spike again. As we would in the model of two and a half weeks. So I don't, I don't believe that, you know, I, I mean, it, to go back to your point about clickbait journalism, like that's where we are, right? Right now today, compared to 20 years ago, we have less than half the number of, number of journalists in this country. Journalism is not a productive form of making money anymore. We cannot make productive amounts of capital through journalism and it's yeah, but journalism—it's got—it's taken on a different tone now. Ooh. Like, I mean, every dickhead with a Twitter account has a platform to get their message across now, exactly. and that's what journalism is now. That's why it's a dying profession. It's because it's—it's it's, the supply has out so has outrun the demand. Well, it—it—I I would actually change that argument to say that. I, I, I would I would change that argument to say a little bit of the the world has decided, or the country, let's just say the country, the country has decided that we're not willing to pay for content anymore. Like the, the, the American consumer is, is very much not willing to pay to get their news. I want to get on fucking Facebook and see what people say. I want to get on Twitter and see what people say. I want to get on Reddit and see what people say. Well, because when you go on Facebook, Twitter, or Reddit, you can get people to say things that you already agree with. Whereas if there's an objective news source, now you're paying for someone to tell you something you don't necessarily agree with. And it's like, do I want to wake up every morning, pay a fee, and have someone tell me that what I already think is wrong? No, nobody wants to do that. No. Everybody wants to be right. No, no, no. That, that, that's right. But- I think even long before we had the social media echo chambers, we entered a like you know when Steve Jobs rolled out the iPad before before print journalism was was fully at the the level of shittiness that it is today. When when we rolled out the iPad, Steve Jobs talked about working with these media outlets who were unable to capitalize on a changing market, and they were trying to go okay, we'll go free and we'll go all ads. But the thing is. They had been struggling for decades and only brought ads into the New York Times, the Washington Post, to these print media, to Wall Street Journal, to mention a conservative outlet. Like They only brought ads in to augment, but what they did was they prolonged a problem. They prolonged the fact that Americans don't want to pay for news. What do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that Americans want news? They want to know what's going on, but they don't want to pay for it. See, I think there's a difference here. I don't really think Americans want to know what's going on. I think Americans want their biases confirmed, and there's a difference. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, it's a, and I think, I think that's what divides us. I mean, like Facebook at one point had like some fucked up slogan about connecting people and all this other shit. Like, the whole new algorithm is is gone away from that, and what it's what it's about is. It's about groups. Like all the business groups that I'm in, they're all about like 
create a group, create a group, create a group. People constantly are unfollowing people who disagree with, with their ideas. Right. And so it, you're right. It creates an echo chamber. And so this thing, this goddamn Facebook that was supposed to connect everybody, really what it does is it divides people and it segregates people further into tribes. And now they're just large tribes and they're dumbass fucking tribes and they're people fighting online. And, you know, th- as I said earlier, this is not my line, but my boy said like, Dude, fighting with someone on Facebook is like arguing with your girl on text. And it's just like, no matter how hard you press those buttons, like she's not going to believe you or she's not going to understand you any better. You're just slamming some buttons. <laughs> you might as well slam your face into the screen. No, exactly. I mean, it, the the other analogy that I've heard is that it, it's just like, you know, playing chess against a pigeon. It doesn't matter how, how, what great strategy you have, what awesome moves you make, that pigeon is going to walk over, knock your pieces over, shit all over the board and strut around like it won something. And that's exactly what happens on, on Facebook. But what Facebook did is it did connect us. What it taught you, what it taught me at least, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing in, in my Facebook is that the people who I've left behind in earlier parts of my life, like, you know, every, uh, you know, people from other areas where I used to live or play, you know, I grew up in a rural area, places where I left. A lot of those people were a big part of the reason that I fucking left. So that's the thing. Like, so I'm 15 years older than you. My undergraduate degree was in communication, another bunch of bullshit. And is like poor man psychology. Like the, the, the other thing, so the UK had this bill that, that came out a while back, which was called like right to be forgotten, right? And it was the right to like remove yourself from, you know, different sorts of Google searches and everything to get yourself out of caches. Uh, the bigger part I feel like that we should be asking ourselves is like the right to forget, like the right to forget people. Because I know that on my Facebook, like as a progressive person who also grew up in central Illinois and grew up with the exact same mindset as the people who I now really disagree with is, you know, I, I, it, I became progressive over a time. My first, my first uh, uh, election I ever voted in was McCain-Obama, and I voted for John McCain. I was, eight, it was like a week after my 18th birthday, and I voted for John McCain, and I was a very hardcore Republican for a long time in so my life. So we switched. So I was a hardcore Democrat <laughs> when I was a kid. And I'll tell you, man, the thing that switched me was basic training, going in the Army. And my, my, whole, my whole everything shifted. But, but I want to just go back to one thing you said about like Facebook and like the right to forget. Like in interpersonal communication, like what they'll tell you is like the timeline of your life, there are reasons that people fall out of your life and there are reasons that people stay in your life. And technology is a blessing and a burden. Sometimes it keeps people in your life too long and that could be something you don't want to want to have to deal with. You're, you're not allowed to- Like fucking crazy people stalking you online. Oh, fuck, man. Uh, recent success in my life has led to a weird DMs uh, uh, in my Facebook account. I wish I could log into MySpace right now. Oh, I would show you some shit. I wish I could see my fucking top eight friends that I used to. That's what I think we're actually missing. I think Facebook needs a ranking system, not eight, like 10. Like Facebook needs, Zuckerberg, Zuck the bitch, like he needs to get on this. I want to rank my friends. I want to rank my top 10 friends every day. If I'm going to use Facebook, I want to know, I want to let everyone know where they stand. Dude, I didn't even have eight friends. (laughs) On Facebook? No, on MySpace? No, I was like, my number three friend was Denzel Washington. I was like, Denzel, can we be Dude, make him your number three. They could be number three. Just be like, be like, no, dude, like me and Denzel are really fucking close. Yeah. Like I've been, I've been talking to him about remember the Titans. And yeah, it's crazy. It's a crazy like, time. So, so like when I when I look at it, like when I look at uh, the the 
the one thing about forgetting is, um, you know, it's one thing to be reminded, right, of the of the people you left behind. Like they come out of nowhere, they all of a sudden join Facebook in 2012, and then you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Like I, I used to have this really racist friend when I was in eighth grade, and now I like, <laughs> you know, now they're back in my life, and they build monster trucks, and they're commenting on my statuses about Black Lives Matter and telling me like to go fuck myself. I'm a commie, but like. The other thing that I'm getting now, like as I enter my 30s and I've and I've changed a lot over my 20s is I'm realizing that the the bigger part is not the right to forget but it's it doesn't allow people to fade away in my life. Like I I I can't I can't let friends that I'm growing distant from fade away because they're still right there in the middle of my fucking feed and it is causing probably issues where I'm like, well, you know, we had different beliefs when we started being friends eight years ago. Like we had some different thoughts. And as time has moved, the world has moved and either you or me or both of us have moved apart in our beliefs. And I don't hate you, but we're probably not going to have a whole shit lot of a lot to, to talk about. But now because of the connections, I don't know how to let you slowly fade out of my life because you're you're going to be in the middle of it and now you know after unfollow you got to unfollow them just unfollow these people and like they'll slowly fade for me like i can't interact on facebook because like so one of the reasons i started unfollowing uh people on facebook was because there are a lot of people that i really like in real life and then their social media personas i was like you're such an asshole on social media that if i continue to watch this i'm gonna wind up hating you in real life and i didn't want to do that i mean people like that that you're talking about i would say unfollow those motherfuckers and let them slip off into the sunset like let them die a slow death on facebook and don't engage them the more you engage them the more they're going to come around it's, it's like a psycho girlfriend. If you ignore her for three months, she's going to eventually get tired of slamming her face into your car window. But if what you do is keep unrolling the window to try and kiss her, she's never going to fucking leave. So, dude, I'm, I'm looking at your books on the shelf and I'm seeing that you like have a bunch of economics book, b- books, but they're written by a lot of um, economics people that veer on one side of the political spectrum, right? And so in economics, it has a huge issue with like... <laughs> political bias, do you ever like think about the fact that if you only read books that are from far right, or not far right, but just right leaning economists, that you'll end up with a right leaning economics view? I would say if you were talking to someone much smarter than me, the answer could probably be yes. But in in, in reality, I read those books and I only get one or two messages out of those things. And uh, the message that I get about economics is it's basically just about allocation of scarce resources and the alternative uses of those scarce, of those scarce resources. I don't, I can't even comprehend the next level of it to see the political bias side of it. <clears throat> so the answer to your question is probably if you're talking to someone smarter than me, yeah, that might be a case, but not for me. I, I so the great courses is a cool, uh, like lecture thing, you know, like, uh, Chris Rivera turned me on to this economy, uh, excuse me, economics course. 
couple years ago and I listen to it all the time and I do some other stuff on there. And the reality is, is that like my brain is pulled in so many different directions and like I have so many interests and so many different things that I can't actually delve deep enough into the economics portion of things to get the next level understanding. And so I just want to understand like the, the overarching theme for me is that there's always an unintended consequence to the choice that you make. And really that bookshelf, and if you open one of those cabinets over there, there's a bunch of other books. Really, those things interest me, but the entire reason I read any of those books is because I want to pull from them some principle that I can apply to jujitsu to make my jujitsu better and to make my jujitsu teaching better. That's all I care about. So, so okay, let's, I, I'm not interviewing you, but... Uh, uh, but you can. You know, jujitsu, right? Jujitsu is... Um, so that's how we know each other, right? Like uh, jujitsu ju- is the the great uh, melting pot of society. Totally, right? it brings it, it. You can you can think whatever you want. Like, you know, our gym has cop haters and literal cops who are you know training together, training together, able to have you know go to each other's parties and have talks and understand like where there is common ground. I think jujitsu and you know actually fighting each other is a way to, uh, you know, you don't even have to talk to each other. You're just having a sort of like language. It's because combat is a survival mechanism. Right. It's primal, like fucking. Right. Violence and combat are self-preservation techniques. And so, now you go ahead, I'm done. Well, so, so I, I found out that like COVID made a huge point of this to me where I thought that I just wasn't doing other workouts because I had jujitsu. But what I found out during the quarantine and the gyms being shut down and all that shit was like, I missed, like not only did I miss jujitsu and miss my friends and miss the community that I had at, you know, at our gym, at your gym, whatever. Like what I, what I found out was I just don't give a shit about working out anymore. If it's not going to like, it's one thing to run on my off day of jujitsu and know, like if I run this extra mile, I'm going to be able to like smash Justin or bug or, you know, any of these motherfuckers like who, who come at me, but it's another, like, I, I don't have any just motivation. Threw down the gauntlet. Oh yeah. Well, dude, no, dude, Justin's been training during quarantine. Like I'm going to need a couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sound like an emphysemac. Like, like I'm going to look like a bitch. Well, what you're saying is, like what I think the problem is with, well, not the problem, but the situation with a lot of things is we're so into uh, immediate results and instant gratification that like you can go to a gym and you can lift weights and you can do cardio and all those things. And in the first eight weeks, you'll probably get some gains because you'll put more weight on, but it's because of a neurological response. You're creating neural pathways and then your body's getting more used to those movements. But it's not until eight weeks that you're actually going to get stronger and build muscle mass. Whereas in jujitsu, you can learn a new technique and in that week, you can see direct results, uh, you know, from the effort that you've put in. It's a totally different thing. I mean, like we're, we're hooked on instant gratification, whether it's motherfucking likes whether it's shares, whether it's swipes on a dating app, or whether it's tapping someone in jujitsu. We are about instant gratification. We're a culture that no longer wants to put in any effort for anything. So like jujitsu, actually, I don't even know if I've ever told you this before. Like jujitsu, no joke, straight up changed my life in the middle of it. And it wasn't like I was like depressed or, or doing anything pretty fucked up. But, um, 
when I moved from the from central Illinois, like I went to University of Illinois, which is still in fucking bumblefuck, big Big Ten college town, and I moved out to Boston and I went to MIT. The only people I knew in Boston, bunch of nerds, went to, were fucking like okay, it, it, a number of people I really like, but yeah, I mean, it was a completely different landscape. Like even when I was at U of I, like I was studying engineering, but most of my friends like. They were like communications majors, like they, you. There, <laughs> <laughs> there are some tough nerds, though. Let's be honest. Okay, there no, are some no, tough there nerds. are some tough nerds. There's some tough nerds at our gym. Yeah, but I, I, I've met a number of those tough nerds, like you know Grace and Mike and Lex. Uh, you know, I, I've met those fuckers like through the gym, actually, more than I have like through jujitsu, more than I have like you know meeting them at MIT. So, but the the problem is that where. The first two years I spent in Boston, I was like, man, like, I don't know, maybe Boston's just not my thing. Maybe I'm more of a Midwest person. I don't really vibe with these fucking people. But I came to the gym and, you know, it wasn't like I even had friends at the gym for the longest time. Like, you're a white belt. You're just, like, fucking around. You're getting to know people. You're trying to, like, figure out jujitsu before you, like, die. And, like, what I found out was... Jiu-jitsu like just level sets everyone. You don't know what anyone does. No one's like, oh, this is like, this is Steve. He runs, uh, you know, this is Steve. He's a co-founder of X. This is, you know, Jess. She's an immuno-oncologist. Like that fucking shit that happens in every other aspect of my professional life was like, not even that. It was maybe, hi, like my name's Jared. I would like to do open guard. Like not that Jared would ever do open guard, but like, you know, like the the same fucking thing, like. The best analogy I have for that is like, I remember like at the end of my basic training and then advanced training in, in, in the army and you go in there and the first bunch of dudes you meet, they all got shaved heads and everyone's wearing the same shit. And then you go through all this training together and you form these, these bonds a lot like jujitsu and like you're trading sweat and you're trading blood and like, you're kind of like propping each other up. Some people are assholes and once in a while you got to check somebody but then at the end of advanced training, after you do a basic training and then you learn your job, there's a night where you get to go out and everyone puts on your clothes. You put your civilian clothes on. So these guys that you've been friends with the whole time, now you put your civilian clothes on and you look at them and you go, oh, you're that guy? And now you're trying to like categorize them based <laughs> on what, what kind of clothes they're wearing. But it's like, dude, we were bros for months. We were fucking bros for months. And now it's like, oh, that's what you wear when you go out? That's the music you listen to? It's the same in jujitsu. Like the rare occasion that we have a social encounter in jujitsu, like with a big group of people, you're like, oh, these are the dudes that I train with. These are the dudes that I do all the stuff with. And then you go out and you're like, oh, you want to go to that club? That place sucks. Or, oh, that's your outfit? But at the end of the day, it's like, there are bonds that form between human beings, whether they're men and men, men and women, whatever it is, like that can't be forced. And too many jujitsu gyms force this fake fucking osing vibing family god bullshit that doesn't exist. That has to be organic. You know how you become bros with somebody? You cross face the fuck out of them. You drip some sweat in their mouth. They bleed on your face. You shake hands after. And then on that weekend, you go and get a beer and a shot. And you know you argue about what music to play on the jukebox. That's how you become bros. And that's what jujitsu does. And that's what the military does. And there are just bonds that are formed that can't be formed in another way other than dripping sweat and blood in another buddy's face. It's a crucible. Right, it it's, just, it's just like the the strongest. Great, book. Great play, Arthur Miller. Uh, like to to me, it's just like we've 
we've been for we know we have something that we know about that other people don't like we have a thing we have a language we have a way to communicate and there's just there's just no replacing that there's a a, a trust that you build with people where you know i mean there is a trust where <laughs> you're counting on someone to stop fucking not break your shit you off or not break your arm if you if you tap out like i mean it's uh man it's it, it, it's fucking wild so <clears throat> talking about that I remember back in my undergrad, like, again, you know, I was a communication major because I was just trying to get through school, and you've already denigrated my scholastic efforts enough, so we're not going to harp on this. But uh, <laughs> but I remember that we learned a lesson about how if you want to form a lasting bond with someone, early in the relationship, you need to, like, take part together in an extreme a uh, situation that creates a lot of adrenaline or a lot of emotion. So they were like, look, if you find somebody that you like to date, take them skydiving because you're going to have formed a bond with them early on in the relationship that won't be broken. Like um, maybe you start dating someone and a, a grandparent dies. Like that's a bond, but that's something that like binds you together long-term. Same thing for uh, jujitsu in the military. Like you're going through something that no one else knows about, but you, you're sharing an experience with someone. And maybe we're talking about guy, guys and guys or guys and girls or girls and girls, whatever. But there's an experience that no one else can share, but you. And within that world, within the jujitsu world, you've got people that can share even more kind of clearly defined, more limited experiences. Like, okay, maybe you're the best competitor in the gym. And you can only relate to the other best competitor in the gym. So, you know, there's all these experiences that bind people together and they kind of create a, a relationships that outside of jujitsu might not have existed. I got a buddy, Dom Nuzdu, and honestly, like, he, he lives in Texas now. If he called me up and he was like, I need you in Texas tomorrow, I'd probably get on a plane instantly and be there. But... If you ever saw the two of us or knew our like subsets of friends, we would have never been friends without jujitsu. But because of jujitsu and because of the bond that was formed, uh, you know, that will last forever. I haven't trained with him in 10 years. But if he calls me up and says, I need you in Texas, I'll probably get on a plane. And as you know, I have a friend like that too, which uh, would have never, ever been friends with. Um, but, you know, it, it is the bond you formed. Like, so. What's what's interesting is like when you when you try to do like you're a small business owner, I have a, a, I have a startup. When you try to start these ventures, you're trying to get other people bought into it, and there's this there's this thought of like, how do I how do I build community in a community I'm not a part of? Like, how do I build community in in how do I how do I get investors to trust me? And one of the things I've actually like. I don't know, thought about a lot is just like, how do I, how do I like expand this, this network I have? Like, how do I, how do I forge these bonds with people like that? How do I induce crucibles in my life? Now I, I don't have a, I don't have a fucking answer, but I think like, you know, 
if more people did martial arts, I'd love to to do that. I mean, I ran into when I was when I was at MIT. You were you were with me, I think. We were at a we were at a tournament like the Boston Open, and I ran into one of my thesis committee members, right? Who did not give a shit about me at the time. Like we could not. He he was like, yeah, this is a guy who I'm on his thesis committee. He's a professor at MIT. He doesn't just give a shit. But after that moment, like just the fact we didn't even roll together, just the fact that we were both ju- we were both at a jujitsu tournament. Uh, unknowingly to the other, we immediately became close. Like we, we were like, Oh, okay. You and perce- then- you perceive to have an experience or a level of knowledge between the two of you that you think a lot of other people don't have and you're right. And that forms a bond. And that's just the way that it is. Oh, and, and, and how do you, uh, I don't know. It, it's, Jiu-jitsu was just like this thing that gave me so much community and purpose in Boston and gave me probably, you know, 75% of my like close friends in Boston that it was like uh I don't know. I think more people should do jiu-jitsu. I I just like I don't people think, should just fight each other. Yeah, fight. Just like get the shit out like what? <sighs> I feel like Twitter would be a lot less fucking grossly toxic if people would just go out and fucking fight each other. So there's there Back in the day, there was a forum in 1998 called submissionfighter.com. Now it, then it was uh, MMA.com. Now it's mixedmartialarts.com. And the, the, dude, back in the day, you could be sitting on there. You could be talking to Tito Ortiz, Matt Hughes, everybody. Like, there was like 50 people on there that had a professional fight. And the rule was you couldn't say anything on there that you wouldn't say to a fighter's face or you got banned. That's how the whole fucking internet should be. Now, I'm not a fan of government regulation, but one thing I think the government should regulate is every internet chat board, every forum, every piece of social media, motherfucker, you got to put your name on that. You have to put your name on that. Like, I don't want like, um, you know, Ren McCormick 69 talking shit to me and like threatening me or whatever. Like, I, I want to know who you are. Like people, when they have to own that, that, those comments and the things that they say and the things they do, I think they're less likely to be assholes. But I might be wrong. No, but but the problem is that the person being uh, on the receiving end of the asshole could also be a piece of shit. And so what you don't guarantee when you make someone stand up behind their comment is that the other person will be willing to set a fair stage, right? So if another weak-blooded human is on the receiving end of being called, you know, being like, hey, actually, you know, fuck you. Let's, do you want to talk about this? Wouldn't that prevent the first person from saying something that might incite that? Maybe, but like what determines inciting it? If I, if I get on, if I get on and someone says, you know, Black Lives Matter is a communist group and I come in and I go, I go, actually like, you know, it's, it's not a communist group, and here are some reasons I think that. And someone takes that as a personal offense, and they decide rather than reaching out to me and saying, "Hey, bitch, like let's let's fucking go." If they turn around and they go, "I'm gonna I'm gonna wait outside his work, and I'm gonna fucking kill him." But I think that increases the civility. Like I, I what you're saying is 100 percent accurate, and I think that what happens is like let's say we disagree on a topic, you and I, and like you know that there are repercussions for what you say. You might phrase it differently. You might frame it differently. You might be like, hey, you know what, JC? Yeah, you think this about that, but here are my thoughts. Instead of being like, you know what, you fucking cocksucker? Fuck you and I hope your mother dies because then I am coming to your work and then I'm going to smash the shit out of you. But because that's a real possibility now, there are real world repercussions. The problem with what a lot of people... uh, do online is that there are no real world repercussions. When I was a little kid now... 
I'm not 20, I'm not 25, and I'm certainly not 30. But if we ran our mouths, like, I mean, there was going to be someone around the corner and, you know, you'd have to like, you'd have to deal with them. I'm not saying you had to fight everybody, but there'd be someone that you'd have to defend your viewpoint to face to face. And now there's a bunch of cyberspace in between a bunch of people and we, it, it, you got huge balls. I, I, I completely agree. But on the other, like, I, I agree that people love the uh, animosity that they can have by, you know, utilizing the internet but the, the the problem actually becomes when i when i think about it that if you are completely you know open with your viewpoints there will always be someone on cyberspace that can you know by a by a targeted attack can fuck you up right so and so how do you how do you control for that how do you control for some crazy ass motherfucker showing up to your house to your to your family's event, to your kids thing. Like how do you control for someone who is going to show up and hurt you in a way that you don't have to defend yourself, right? I'm all for like I will 100% defend myself or defend my views like to someone if if we're on like, you know, if you and I are on social media, I may I may comment on one of your things and say like, you know, there's been things you've even said before where I'm like I think you're wrong, dude. Um, you control for it by the way that you talk to people, I think. You control for it, but there are, you know, there are people in the world in cyberspace. When we talk about cyberspace, there are people in the world who believe that a insult is something as simple as Black Lives Matter. Look at the people who are, uh, who are offended by the word Black Lives Matter. Or look at the people who are offended by, you know, the Confederate flag. I'm not saying the Confederate flag's not offensive. But, but- this is a balance of power. So that, that creates a balance of power. When, there's, when there are people who are concerned about how their comments will be perceived because they're real-time penalties, there's a balance of power. And they think more. They think more deliberately about the things they say because there's real-time penalties. Now, Sometimes I think that there are legitimate like arguments for stupidity online. You're always going to have some dickhead who doesn't matter if his name's attached to it or not is going to say something inflammatory. But I think that what you're going to do is you're going to cut out the middle two thirds of people who are just starting trouble to start trouble online. And you know, you say something to me online and you say, Oh, you know, like whatever you make, you insult my, you know, my posts or, I mean, I don't make posts. I don't really give a shit. You insult something like there's going to be a repercussion because your name's attached to it. You'll always have the people who won't care, but I think at least you'll dwindle down the number of people who will say things just to inflame people, the trolls. I, I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, I don't know if you'll ever be able to prevent people from making fake accounts, um, that's true. I mean, like you got to verify your PayPal account, don't you? I mean, Elon. Well, what? <laughs> I mean, you know, vote by mail, dude. I just took a class, uh, and it was about surveys and I don't, I don't want to go down this path cause we've been drinking a little bit and, uh, I would want to brush up on it, but the least accurate survey for market research or any other type of survey is mail-in surveys. Of course it is. Of course it is. Because people have um, the same amount, uh, what you what you just said about animosity, or er, er, uh, anonymity. People have anonymity when it's mail-in, and you 
what you get is that people will say things how they think about themselves, and especially they won't feel like they'll ever have to live up to it. You got brothers or sisters? I have one sister. Okay, imagine you live at home. You're an assertive guy. I'll bet you that if you lived at home with your family and the, the, the ballots came to your, your mailbox and your sister was like, you know what, I'm going to vote opposite of Jake. I'll bet you that you could put her in a room, proverbially, and I'll bet you you could convince her to check the box that you want her to check. It's too much influence. There's too much going on there. So your whole idea is that the risk is that a household will have a split ballot and that then the household will lobby to a specific person. I wouldn't in, say sp- in an age of technology where you know candidates are allowed to be in your fucking face 24/7 on your Facebook feed, on your fucking everything. We've been voting by mail for literally since we had the mail system. So again, you file our taxes by mail. Uh we file taxes in a certain way and I don't want to get into some of the liberties that can be taken when you file your taxes by mail or online with TurboTax, uh, because I'm going to plead the fifth on that. However, I do think that if you're in a larger household, there are opportunities to influence people the way you want, which is why you can't be within certain feet of a a voting booth. Uh, There are all kinds of things. And again, I, I don't, I don't know enough about the statistical relevance of mailing surveys slash ballots to people, but I just think it's probably not a great idea. I just don't. My gut. I just don't believe that the risk factor of a split ballot household in America. Why are you saying split ballot? What do you mean by that? I mean the fact that you live in a house where the political views within the house are split. Like, it is very uncommon in America where a house that has, and somehow the house has brothers and sisters and parents all over 18 years of age, which you know is pretty uncommon in the first place. But not only does it have that, it also has a difference of political ideology, especially in today's world, of hyperpolarization. There are very few families who, li- who could stomach living under the same roof and having, I I couldn't live with my family even if they agreed with me. I mean, anecdotally, I'm not, I agree with you on the first part, but anecdotally, I'm not sure that that's true that people would be able to live under this, wouldn't be able to live under the same roof with like very polarized political views. I'll bet you there are some boomers out there that are ashamed of their kids who are like doing some like super left-wing progressive shit. Like, regardless of whether you think it's right or wrong. I'll bet you there are some like basement dwelling kids playing video games who disagree totally with their parents' politics. But my, my, I guess uh, I'm, I don't want to talk about something that I'm re I mean, I talk about some shit that I'm really uneducated about a lot, but I'm really uneducated about mail-in ballots. But I would guess that like, I read an article the other day that talked about how uh, it could take up to 12 months for the government to catch up to the fact that you've changed your address. So maybe a family of five moves out of a place and now a family of one lives there and, or, you know, whatever. And you get five ballots in the mail yep. and all of a sudden, brrr, 
Next thing you know, you got five votes for Joe Jorgensen. Right. It is on that family to register themselves at their new location. And if they do that, and if you re-register yourself, your new location will be priority. Like, it, it will in inactivate your previous ballots. Right now, our, our mail-in ballot system is actually pretty good. Actually, last year, 10% of America voted by mail, including all of our service members overseas and most American politicians, um, including you know the current president and his whole family. They all voted in Florida. Um, and so the idea that mail-in ballots will somehow compromise the election. Meanwhile, we... we You're talking about a small number. I mean, like, I think that that's, that's probably... And I shouldn't come off as I'm arguing against mail-in ballots because I certainly... I don't know enough about it to, like, take a side or another, one side or the other. Uh, but I will tell you that my gut instinct, like, knowing what I know from, you know, school and market research and things, that, that it's unreliable, my gut instinct is that it's probably not good. But... And I think that... Overseas soldiers and current politicians voting via mail is such a small percentage that it's not statistically significant. 10% of Americans. 10. Only 25% of Americans voted in the last election. That's a fucking problem right there, bro. Oh, huge fucking problem. 25% of, Amer- uh, of eligible Americans. Okay, so f- for instance, I, I, I'm going to pull some numbers out of my ass right now, but I'm pretty sure that it was 13 million to 10 million Hillary versus Trump. Like Hillary had 13 million, Trump had 10 million votes last year. That's 23 million people decided to vote. Three, more, three million more for Hillary. We, Electoral College, which we don't have to talk about, you know, swung in a huge majority for Trump. And 26 million, 26 million of a 300 million population. I think it is that, like, you saw Bernie, like, when he ran, it looked like he was going to blow Joe Biden out of the water. Like, he had new policies. He said, he said, fuck the establishment. I'm going to be different. I'm going to be completely different. Everybody says that. And then they're, and then by the time they get elected, they're so beholden to everybody that even if they really meant what they said on their way to the office, by the time they get there, they can't get anything passed because they're so beholden to everyone. But that was Bernie because he stuck to it. He never took PAC money. He took only individual donors. He stuck. His wife stole a bunch of money from a university. You know, I mean, he's a money grubbing fuck too. Dude, He's been in he's been in Congress for thirty years and he's got a net worth of four million dollars. But he's never had another job. No, he has had another job. What he was, was a community organizer. Then he was the <laughs> mayor. Bro, my mom was a community organizer. She went around and knocked on doors and hung shit for yeah, fucking he, Joe Lieberman back marched, in the eighties. He marched on DC with with Martin Luther King. He was the mayor of. What Burlington, Vermont. I, I guess what I mean is he's not had a job outside politics. He's not had a job outside of policy. And he has, but the thing is with a history like that, you can look at someone's history and say, have they done things that are populist? You can look at Joe Biden right now, and there are so many reasons not to vote for Joe Biden because of his policies. Um, you know, not policies that I think disqualify him against his current contender, but you look at his policies and you go, you were instrumental in the silencing of, of the, the people who are outspoken uh, about, um, I'm blanking on the Supreme Court justice's name, uh, who had some sexual assault allegations similar to Kavanaugh. Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas. And, uh, uh, and you were 
instrumental in the in the authorship of of bills that prevented college loan recipients from declaring bankruptcy right. from getting out of it. And you were instrumental in the Tough on Crime Acts, which disproportionately affected black communities. And you can say that. And, and, and those are those are great reasons to not vote for Joe Biden. They were great v- reasons not to vote for Joe Biden in the primary to anyone who voted for him in the primary. But when you look at Bernie's history through 30 years in Congress and all the years before that in public policy, when it wasn't popular, civil rights in the 60s, when it very much was not popular, he's been on the right side of history 100% of the time. Well, let me ask you this question, because this is what I, I kind of think, like, based on, I have one of, one of the best dudes you'll ever know in your life is a friend of mine, and he's in law enforcement. And I kind of think this, based on conversations with him, he's a little bit more right-leaning and he'll even tell you this, and I think this about politicians, there's got to be a cap, 10 years. Like, oh, of course. As a cop or as a politician, like, or really as anything, like I've been teaching jujitsu now forever, and it's like if I didn't have young guys coming in challenging me and like trying to like smash my face, I'd be doing the same shit I was doing like 10, 15 years ago. But these guys, like politicians, cops, after 10 years, they get numb to situations. I'm reading a great book right now called Range by uh, David Epstein, who wrote Sports Gene, who is, that's one of the greatest books I've ever read. And it talks about like being a generalist as opposed to being a specialist. And basically it's like, you need to have transferable skills. You can't be so like, have such tunnel vision because you've been doing the same thing for so long because subconsciously you start to eliminate outside explanations and you start to believe your own shit. You're on your, you you basically become your own echo chamber. And I think that for police officers on the street, Anyone who who has to make snap decisions or politicians who are there too long, like we need to cap these things and we need to say, hey, man, you've been in Congress for five two-year terms or two five-year terms or three three three-year terms. I know that makes nine. Whatever it is, like we got to rotate you out. We got to get some fresh blood in because the world has changed. And right now what we have in politics is a bunch of motherfuckers who don't have any like – they're so detached from what's going on right now in the world. And I say this all the time. The problem with our leadership right now is that none of them have ever been leaders. I, I completely agree on the, uh, on the term limits. I mean, you know, when, at, when asked about term limits, uh, Mitch McConnell, who's the majority leader of the Senate right now, he said, we do have term limits. We have uh, elections. And he is an asshole, but I, what, what I think is, what is an easy solution is you get three years in the house, you get two, you, you get, no, you get three sessions in the house, you get two sessions in the Senate. That is, if you do three terms in the House followed by two sessions in the Senate, that is straight up 18 years. If you cannot get things done in 18 years in Congress, you're a fucking idiot. That's but, a great idea. But, but that's, that's plenty of time. To be in federal government, I think that more so than we should have a 25-year uh, uh, age restriction on the House and a 30-year uh, 30 age restriction on the Senate and a 35-year age restriction on the presidency, I think that they should have restrictions on being in non, non-policy-facing roles. So you don't get to be in government affairs at Lockheed Martin and then go into and then go into a, uh, a, a job in, in Congress or run for Congress afterwards when you already have got those attentions. 
You should. got to vote on shit. These motherfuckers are absentee all the time. Every one of these cocksuckers on both sides of the aisle. I think you just set a cap. You say, hey, if you vote over five, five, 10% of your votes absentee, or you fail to vote on five, if you fail to show up for work five to 10% of the time, you're fired. So if you, if you fail to show up at my company less than 5%, I will fire you. And so why the fuck can people just not show up for votes or just not go on the record? Do you, are you involved, are you aware enough to form a, uh, an opinion on Dan Crenshaw? I don't know who Dan Crenshaw is. He's a, I think he's a senator or congressman from Texas. He's got the eye patch. They fucked with him on Saturday Night Live a little bit. He's, he's, I mean, I like him to the point where he's so reasonable and calm in, in his approach to things. I think right now as a Republican, because you only have two choices, Republican or Democrat, I think he's a little bit like uh, hugging the, the party line a little bit too much. But I mean, he's a reasonable dude. He was a Navy SEAL. He lost his eye in combat. And I really like a lot of the shit that he says. And what I think is... I know there's a lot of people, there's some stupid Facebook movement talking about fucking Jocko in the Rock 2020. Like, get the fuck out of here. Kanye uh, Elon 2020. <laughs> yeah. What Honestly, what I would say is Crenshaw Gabbard 2020. Two people who have served in the military. They've got different policies, foreign policies and domestic policies. And, you know, it's like anyone else. You get into office and you figure a lot of it out based on who you surround yourself with. It's like, like, think about this. Think about jujitsu. Think about MMA. No one person can teach it to you, can teach you all of it. No one person can be excellent at all of it. You've got to pick the things you know about and excel there and then bring in a support staff to help you with the other things. And I mean, right now, obviously as someone who served in the military, I favor people who served in the military, but I mean, I think that the Democratic Party did a disservice to her just in the beginning. Who knows if she would have made it to the final debates, but the fact that she tortured Kamala early on in the beginning, who I think the Democrats thought was like one of their darlings, I think that they kind of buried her, and you know that it's all about money. So anyway, switching gears. Answer this any way you want to. And don't ask for clarification. Who's your favorite artist? The Pixies. The Pixies are your favorite artists. Well, no doubt. Interesting. If I think about the amount of time that I spend appreciating, the amount of time I spend appreciating the art of any artist, uh, it's got to be the Pixies. So the when I when I think about a, so I, I immediately went to you know music because that's the only art that I give a shit about. Like. I care about visual arts. It's the only art we can really name people who aren't into visual art. Like most people, most people are exposed to musical art on a regular basis. We're not exposed to visual art, and so we can't name people. It's it, it's true. So I was in uh, I was I was in a band uh, when I was in high school and and into college, and the guys in the band got me into alternative rock and into the idea of like up until that point I had never even thought of the idea that you could be different in music. And the Pixies may have a nostalgia factor to me because they were the first band that I got into for that. Like I already knew about Nirvana and grunge rock seemed like a thing that it wasn't nearly as like protest rock at that point in my life, right? Because it had, it had already happened. But 
you know, the, the Pixies were just a band to me that, uh, yeah, dude, they're just completely different. They just didn't, they, they clearly didn't give a fuck. Like there's a video, there's a video of them doing a concert. I remember in the UK where, uh, Francis, who's their, you know, black Francis, who's their lead singer. They're from here. Player. They're from Boston, right? Yeah. 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 So, so they formed at UMass, uh, Francis, Francis and black Francis, their lead singer and their guitar, Joe, their guitarist, Joey, uh, formed the band at UMass in their dorm, and then they recruited Kim Deal, who was their bass player, from a, a Help Wanted ad. And then they, uh, you know, found uh, uh, Lovering, who's their like guitar, their drummer. Chick bass players, they they're just something special, dude. Dude, I I proposed to Kim Deal when I was 18 years old at a Pixie show, the last Pixie show What'd that Kim played at. Uh, she definitely didn't like respond to me. And at what all. what and band I'm did pretty, she go on? Did she she do Letters to Cleo? She, or she founded the Breeders. The Breeders, the Breeders, yeah, yeah. with her sister, Cannonball. Yeah, yeah, Cannonball. Yeah, you know, uh, bigger success than any Pixie song <laughs> yeah. ever. Which except is maybe gotta, Wave of Mutilation was well, on 120 minutes all the time. Yeah, but uh, well, and and uh, you know, where's my mind is the closing song of Fight Club. But like, in terms of Billboard, Cannonball's more successful. But the the last tour they went on, which was as the Pixies before Kim quit the band fully, and they they recruited uh, this woman named Paz, who was the bassist in uh, A Perfect Circle, I think. Um, and she now is the main basis of uh, the Pixies, and they've put out new albums, which are also which are also good if you like that style of music. But they, they like when I got into the Pixies, it was like it was it was again it was like jujitsu. Like I don't know, I, I would always I, I think I'll always love jujitsu even if ninety percent of America did jujitsu. But there is something about the music when you're a teenager where you're like fuck, this is amazing. And then you're like, why doesn't everyone else know about this? And it's like a secret that you're in on. Yeah, and it's like, it depends on what point in your life it hits. Mm-hmm. Like, <clears throat> you know, I'm something of a bass player myself. I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I tell people that my favorite bands are The Replacements and Jane's Addiction, like people are like, oh yeah, those are cool bands. Uh, they're not my favorite bands, but it's like, Dude, if you were doing what I was doing when I discovered those bands, they might be your favorite bands. There's an element of nostalgia to all music, right? Totally. Associative property. And it actually doesn't matter. And I, I, I'm wondering what's going to happen with Gen Z and their music because- Who the fuck is Gen Z? How old are those little suckers? I think the oldest are like 24. I think that's the youngest millennials. I don't, do they even know what music is? Or is it all like trap music? It's and all like auto-tune? TikTok. But like, like no, but the, they actually probably may be the most musically sophisticated generation for their age because they have all music at all times. Like, you know, my generation had the iPod when we were in high school. Like, we had the iPod. We had a thousand songs in our wallet, but we probably just filled it with, like, Taking Back Sunday and shit, and that's, that's what I did for sure. But they have Spotify. They can discover things. They have Pandora. They can figure out and discover all sorts of new types of music. They'll have their generation's music and they'll have small artists, which are now able to be supported by the, these platforms. But they'll also be able to listen back and be able to be like, I'm nostalgic. Like I have a nostalgia feeling about the Beatles even though I was never alive while the Beatles were around because the Beatles came into my life when I was like 15. But don't you think that like kids now who have all these streaming services and access to this music, 
yeah, they've got music at the ready, but they've got their favorite songs at the ready. Like when I was driving around in my fucking Mercury Topaz and like pushing cassette <laughs> tapes in and out, like I had to listen to track three to get to track four. And track three might have become my personal favorite track. But nowadays, like there is no track three that someone can secretly uncover. Everyone just puts out track four, the most radio Reddit, most radio edit ready, the most like pop ready. But track it, there is like we could open that drawer right over there dude and we could play the siamese dream like first press album and we can rock out until whenever <laughs> but like there are songs on there that on that album on that like of course that's on vinyl but on tape and again we're different generations if that were on tape i might have found a different favorite song on that album than you did because i had to press through an actual cassette recording whereas these guys are just skipping those fucking songs on spotify you're not getting the album experience there's no concept album i think actually the exact opposite because you have to think about the fact that you had a gating mechanism that you didn't know you were subject to which was whoever decided that they got a cassette or an album made a decision about whether or not you got to hear it now that doesn't matter you want to you want to make a sound that's just the twenty seven minutes of you farting into a microphone like that gets to be distributed. But sometimes you need to be exposed to things you're not ready to be exposed to, like and you can still appreciate them. And how many artists through time honestly did that? How many artists through time honestly used that got famous and then used their platform to be like and motherfuckers strawberry fields? No, I don't think that's the case. But if we go back to the, the idea we we're talking about earlier, which is like people confirmation bias and echo chambers, it's like when I was a kid, let's just take an album that I had on vinyl and let's just say like, uh, I don't remember the order of the songs, Slippery When Wet, Bon Jovi. Like I wanted to hear Living on a Prayer, but you had to go through the other songs and you actually had to be exposed to different ideas and different songs. Whereas now, like... All I have to do is confirm the thing that I already like, and I could just keep living on a prayer a hundred times. And I might miss an idea, a song, or a riff, or whatever that might resonate with me in a different way because of technology. I want to suffer through the process a little bit at least to get there. I think you're talking about a problem that came when CDs arrived more than you're talking about a problem that is inherent to streaming. Because I think that when CDs arrived, you're talking exactly like you, you, you're actually nailing exactly what happened 100%. in the, in the, in the late nineties to the early two thousands, you saw exactly that. Like people got so obsessed with hit songs that that stupid fucking company hit clips came out. Do you, do you remember this shit? Yeah. Like hit clips, which was like a thumb drive that played 20 seconds of a shit ass song it was like hit me baby one more time and then like that's, that's all that a played. great song like though. yeah oh it's a great music great video. it's a great music video with the volume turned off but like <laughs> no i really like it yeah i i like it with the volume turned off alone in my house was you know by myself i want the volume up so but the but the thing is like we got obsessed with the idea of hits and mtv pivoted from saying we're going to play music to we're going to we're going to play new music we're going to play music videos we're going to play we're going to expose you to we're going to play the hits we're going to play the hits and every radio station transitioned to it. we're going to play the hits everyone got obsessed with the hits when the CD came out in streaming yeah like we're going to be limited to only listening to songs we like 
But the amount of money output, like, you know, you don't have, if you pay Spotify $0, you can go off and still find new music. And if you pay Spotify $4.99 or whatever, the student price, you can go and, yeah, me too. Uh, my MIT email address. I, I get the duo it. though. I think I pay like nineteen dollars. I got like two different accounts. I don't want the guys at the gym like like. I don't want them knowing that I'm listening to Taylor Swift. No, uh, you listen to Taylor Swift. All right, you're getting judged over here too. Uh, Girl can write a good lick, but but you got to think about it. Like people are able to listen to more music, and that will lead to a higher amount of diversity of songs. Diversity of artists, not diversity of songs, probably. Because I would be, I would guess, without doing any studies, that the song selection is similar across artists by people who can just sit there and like, uh, like pick different different songs. Whereas I think that if you do it in a different manner and you choose, I don't know, dude. Listen, Let, let's look at little. Let's add, let, let's let's do this. Let's go down the street to the Tam get a shout out tequila. We've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes. All right. Let's wrap it up. JB, thanks, my man. I'm going to do the outro in a little bit. Uh, I don't even really know why I'm talking anymore. But uh, <laughs> let's go down. Let's go get some tequila. All right. I'm in. Giddy up. <laughs> Dude, I thought that was awesome. That's it for us, everybody. Thanks, as always, to our guests for coming down to Podcast Alley and spending a few minutes with us shooting the shit. Don't forget to click the subscribe button so you get this intel as fast as we do. Good night, everybody. 